talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtle through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Guardians of the Galaxy, released in July 2014, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Ken Loach retiring from making feature films but then changing his mind and coming back again, Martin Scorsese appearing as Doo-Doo in Hollywood Green Card's Doggy Date, or Jennifer Aniston in Horrible Bosses 2 instead. I'm Phil Catterall, and I didn't do a great big rewatch of all the Marvel movies, but joining me today is... Tim Worthington, who did? Tim, hello. Hello, Phil. This is normally the bit where it's me hosting and say, where can people find you? So people can find me, well, usually presenting this, to be honest, usually with you as the guest, let's be honest about Not it. You. But... Oh, come on, I can't be the... Oh, probably... No, no, sure. surely David Smith's been on more than I have, surely. It's a fun competition, put it that way. Anyway, yeah, yeah. normally I'd be presenting this, but you can also find me at timworthington.org, where there's all kinds of other episodes of this, there's all kinds of stuff like details of all my books, like Top of the Box, Can't Help Thinking About Me, not on your telly plenty more besides things. some features on Marvel and some features on something that are nothing to do with Marvel at all Tim just for fun why don't you read your tweet out about when you watch this in your big rewatch in the first place I don't think I can really do justice to this in one tweet like the very best 80s sci-fi and action comedy movie smashed into one and everyone plays their characters with just the right balance of absurdity and menace also Howard the Duck I mean I feel like you're giving Howard undue prominence there <laughs> if you've only got you know 280 characters maybe you can leave Howard out of that Okay, Tim, what happens in Guardians of the Galaxy? Well, basically, Peter Quill, Star-Lord, who's a kind of self-appointed galactic policeman, is after an orb containing the Power Stone, one of the Infinity Stones, supposedly to retrieve it for the Ravagers, who are his less than reputable associates, but he actually kind of wants to get it to a place of safety. Also after it are Gamora and Nebula, who are two of Thanos' daughters, who are after it for Thanos, although they might be after it for their own means, who hate each other, basically, which is quite a key part of it. Then you've got Groot who's a tree creature and Rocket who's a talking cybernetic raccoon who are after all three of them basically for the bounties on their heads we've also got Drax the Destroyer who is not a bright man but is after <laughs> Thanos and anyone connected with Thanos for revenge for the death of his family meanwhile the real galactic police the Nova Corps are after everyone the Ravagers are after whatever they can get their hands on to make money from and Ronan the Accuser who's a rogue Cree well his motives kind of although they're very obviously nasty from the beginning they're not obviously from the beginning but anyway they all realise that they might be a bit better teaming up to protect this orb from the people who are trying to do dangerous things with it and that's how they essentially become the Guardians of the Galaxy you've definitely summarised a quite it's quite convoluted in places it's not Iron Man 3 convoluted <laughs> let's be fair and in fact actual sort of beginning to end story it doesn't feel complicated like I there's no point in this film where you think I don't really know what's supposed to be going on at this like you do with Iron Man 3 but yeah there's a lot going on a lot 
lot of characters to introduce. What did you know about the characters going in then? Well, when you say kind of what did I know about the Guardians of the Galaxy before I saw this, it makes it even more complicated in terms of characters because I always thought of the, well, this Guardians of the Galaxy, as I'll come back to a relatively recent introduction into Marvel, yeah. at least as a team. I always thought the original 60s Guardians of the Galaxy, who were Yondu, who does appear in this, along with some other characters like Stakaro Gorb, Martin X, Alita, and so on, who turn up in the second one, who yeah. I never really saw any of their original comics when I was younger, but they turn up in things like the Fantastic Four to assist with things and say like, ooh, we haven't flown in Delta Formation since we fought Super Scroll, And then there'd be an asterisk <laughs> saying, see Thor Volume 4, number 586. <laughs> Basically, I was thought of them. And the actual characters who make up the Guardians of the Galaxy in this and the current comics, well, not all of them, as again we'll come back to. I knew them from other places. Star-Lord was a sort of character who turned up in backup strips in the UK Marvel comics. Gamora and Nebula, I mainly knew from the Infinity Gauntlet, which is the comic series that more or less the entire Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe from Iron Man through to the last season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was based on. Groot, I first saw in. There was a Hulk annual where it had a big epic story called was it Six Shall Challenge the Hulk or Seven Shall Challenge the Hulk where it was all these elemental creatures were sent to fight the Hulk a bit like Ian McCaskill's vision of Scott Pilgrim versus the world <laughs> where there'd be kind of you say now it's time to face your fears green creature feel the might of Sleeto the living Sleet <laughs> the Hulk be like beauty rainwater cannot stop me but Groot uh, well not this Groot a Groot appeared in that fight in the Hulk though apparently Groot goes right back to the very earliest Marvel comics before even the Fantastic Four when they just oh. anthology comics and him and Jimmy Woo apparently had some kind of face off at some point which I really want to see now that I mean with the current iteration of Jimmy Woo yeah I'd, <laughs> I'd really like to see that because Jimmy Woo's superpower as far as I can tell is just being a nice dude yeah, <laughs> reacting yeah see yeah Guardians of the Galaxy was an odd choice when it appeared on the slate initially because we'd been pretty heavily earthbound with everything up until this point yeah we'd had a bit of space in the Avengers but it was mostly tied to the real world to a degree wasn't it yes and they very nearly didn't I'm sure they would have appeared eventually but they, they nearly didn't appear this early in proceedings because there is a bit mm. of a backstory there in the, I mean the Guardians themselves I think this iteration only go back to about 2006 and they're really only put together to facilitate some larger crossover comics that needed a space element which is kind yeah. of what ended up happening here but they weren't really they hadn't been when I say they hadn't been that successful they were liked by fans but they'd not really taken off but Kevin Feige had been going back through comics to see what would be suitable and he kind of earmarked them as a potential thing and then well I'll tell this in a roundabout way but basically they wanted to have a space film in phase two because right. of the nature of the Infinity Stones and the need to bring in the space element the problem was they didn't have the rights to the Silver Surfer or Rom the Space Knight they didn't want to do the Eternals because that would have brought too much complication into it and also they're related to Thanos so they could have just yeah. said to him you know you do your homework and then you go to bed without any supper you know they're amongst the many characters that were brought in because they could have stopped him and originally well, you might be a bit ahead of me here but this slot was going to be filled by a film of Inhumans and that fell through <sighs> 
And it ended up as a TV series, and we know what happened. <laughs> yeah, we do. Let's not talk about that. No, we really won't. But by chance, Nicole Perlman, who's now one of Hollywood Totter's properties and co-wrote Captain Marvel, amongst other things, was taken on kind of on the trainee scheme by Marvel. He was given a right. list of properties, kind of saying, what would you do with these that we haven't got round to yet? And apparently she looked at the list and thought, well, they'd obviously be expecting me to pick She-Hulk or Spider-Woman or something. Who are the Guardians of the Galaxy? And, you know, she looked into them and she thought, oh, okay, this is interesting. You've got these two sisters who hate each other, who are defined by their dysfunctional relationship with their father. You've got a man who's defined by his dysfunctional relationship with his mother. Then you've got this idiot. You've got a talking tree, talking raccoon. I could do something with this. And she wrote basically a treatment. And although James Gunn more or less rewrote the entire script, you know, to make it more structured like a Western and build running jokes and just give it more movie structure, he does say that all of the ideas initially were hers. And she does have a co-writer credit on it. It's just that fortuitous way that the cards fell over that what was essentially a spare slot in the phase two that this ended up happening. It ended up being one of the most successful movies of the whole lot. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one sort of where it sits in phase two. You've got Thor the Dark World then you've got Captain America the Winter Soldier which are both relatively speaking quite dour compared to a lot of the other Marvel stuff. And then you get this which is neon and lots of back and forth high energy banter and then you get Age of Ultron after that, but we'll, yeah, I guess that's also a thing that exists. But this, it really does stand out as not being anything like what's around it. I don't think anyone was quite expecting this at this point of Marvel. It's good. I like that they're prepared to go in weird directions. It gives me a lot of hope for whatever we're going to see in Phase 4. But yeah, it does kind of... The other thing that stands out for me with it is, this is one of the big epic scale ones that the Russo brothers are not in any way involved in, but it feels feels the most like an episode of Community <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, I realised this while sort of going through it again. It's like the, the back and forth and the fact that this is a completely dysfunctional group that cannot operate without each other whilst also constantly being at each other's throats is very, very season three of Community, especially as no one else likes them. That's the best part of it. Everyone else is just like, why? Why are they here? Well, that's, I think, I mean, even apart from the humour and the action, I mean, what people don't really say about this is it's like a proper space adventure movie at the time yeah, yeah, yeah. of the kind that hadn't been for ages that bit where the Nova Corps or lock up put their spaceships in that defensive formation it's as good as anything I remember seeing when I was a kid and that battle is so exciting but every character in it when they say they have a humanity and you know I don't mean it's you know get the violins out although there are bits a bit like that but they have a human sense beneath the surface well with Drax it is not beneath the surface it is right out there <laughs> uncontrolled with everything he says whereas with nebula it takes half the universe being wiped out to get to who she really is but i think the moment that i realized this was going to be absolutely brilliant is you know don't get me wrong the intro is brilliant where it looks like a kind of bleak post alien sort of space film you know with star lord scanning that dead planet and yeah, looking yeah. sad at the memories of what was what has now gone and then he puts his woman on the dances to come and get your love i mean that's all great but it's really when very early on when nova prime Glenn Close is talking to a Cree negotiator and doesn't get anywhere. The comlink goes down and she just says, prick. <laughs> and that is the moment where you realise that every character is going to be like that. You know, there's a great bit with Peter Sanford the Witch reading yes. out the message from Star-Lord. Everyone in it gets them. I mean, even Rocket, there's that amazing bit where after that 
kind of quite Star Wars-y bit where they've been betting on the racing snails on nowhere and Drax has been shouting let's put more of this liquid into our bodies to suddenly get drunk and then Rocket has a meltdown starts trying to shoot everyone saying I didn't ask to be made in some ways that kind of changed the course of the MCU in general that paved the way for the moments you get in things like Infinity War and Endgame and the Ant-Man films and so on where there's more of an allowance for things like that of accounting for I say people I'm talking about Rocket but you know actual reactions to things yeah I think it was interesting to you know I know obviously Tony Stark is a dysfunctional human being but it was interesting to have an entire core cast that is horrifically dysfunctional in a bunch of different ways like this and to allow that to be addressed Quill and Rocket are both sue me for saying this one prime examples of toxic masculinity in action (laughs) both of them more so in the second film than in this one but still plenty of it in this one Drax is just he's broken in a very different way I am not broken I am fully intact (laughs) exactly Groot's the only one of the original lineup I think that is not damaged but then again maybe he is we don't even know what we know some we know Rocket had stuff done to him to make him what he is but we don't know how he hooked up with Groot in the first place so I'm fairly sure the answer is I am Groot well yes obviously and then minor characters like Yondu who are well they're minor in this one but significantly less minor in the other ones and an early appearance for Korath who doesn't show up again until Captain Marvel I think what with being you know dead by the end of this one yes that's interesting that there are more tie-ins with the people treat the two Guardians of the Galaxy films as though they're kind of only connected with the rest of it by the existence of the Infinity Stones and by the presence of Thanos until they turned up in Infinity War but there are links with the other films through things like that and also let's not get into the whole thing of people trying to say Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. isn't canon because I will go on for the next 45 minutes this please, example but please don't let's take it as read that it is carry on <laughs> one is that just before this came out they deliberately introduced the Kree or rather the concept of a dead Kree fueling something at S.H.I.E.L.D. into Agents oh, of S.H.I.E.L.D. Oh yeah to yeah, set it's up in a drawer, the fact isn't it? that yeah. the Kree were there yes it's in, it's in the drawer yes yeah. it is <laughs> you mean like a morgue drawer you make it sound like a roll top desk drawer I mean <laughs> hi pals it's me Kree but yes it, it, it's in a morgue drawer with, with pipes coming out of it not pipes <laughs> but pipes sorry <laughs> abused myself too much with a stupid reference to Ghostwatch. But yeah, I don't know how much of the stuff... I mean, you, you look at say, Zack Snyder's Justice League recut that he did, and that has a whole bunch of tie-ins to stuff that they were setting up for the future that will now never happen. You do wonder how much stuff went on in the background of, of a big, sprawling epic like this that they've just never paid off anywhere, and they never will get around to paying it off anywhere. And we won't know, because they'll never go and pay it off, will they? Well, and you wonder what disappeared on route because there are a couple of actual Guardians of the Galaxy conspicuous by their absence. I mean, Kitty Pride, obviously, Fox still owned the rights to her as part of the X-Men series, so she's not in there. Nova they didn't want in, apparently, because the actual Nova Corps were featuring. And also, he's a little bit, not quite toxic masculinity, but, you know, he's very alpha male. And that would have been a bit three Hitlers in one bunker. Yeah, and it would also have been a bit of a case of, well, why can't this person just stop Thanos? Because power levels are up there with Captain Marvel. 
Marvel, aren't they? So. Same goes for Adam Warlock. And there's also yep. Cosmo the Space Dog. Technically, is in it. I'm sure people are wondering what on earth is going on with that dog running around with the space helmet on. Cosmo was one of the original <laughs> dogs in space from the 50s who survived, developed telekinetic abilities, and eventually spends time as the head of security on nowhere. They sort of trailed Adam Warlock at the end of the second yes, film, didn't yeah. they? I think one of the real strengths in this is that, you know, the casting throughout the MCU is normally great. Even things like Hellstrom, which obviously didn't really work. I think the two leads in that were brilliantly cast. They were perfect as Damon and Anna. But in this, for some reason, the casting just goes over and above the usual standard. Everyone is so perfectly suited. And it's people you wouldn't. If you had said, you know, in 2013, there's going to be a Guardians of the Galaxy film. Dave Batista is going to be Drax. Karen Gillan is going to be Nebula. You would have been thinking, what? <laughs> but they are all fantastic. Yeah, Karen Gillan was into her Hollywood period at that point, though, wasn't she? She'd, she'd done a, a horror film or something. Oculus? Is that the one? Yes, yeah, and she had read the Infinity Gauntlet, apparently, which I was yeah, quite surprised to find out. And shaved the head for the role as well. Yeah, there point. are rumours that she was offered, because Nebula sort of vacillates between looks in the comics. Sometimes she's very attractive with long purple hair, and other times she's like, Nebula, Nebula, and she wanted the Nebula Nebula look apparently also Chris Pratt I didn't know that much about apart from Parks and Recreation and Andy is one of the roles where it's difficult to separate if you don't know that much about the actor from the character apparently they saw a lot of people for Star-Lord including Lee Pace eventually played Ronan the Accuser Joseph Gordon-Levitt and so on but they settled on him and he is so good as Star-Lord I mean I think the real strength he brings to it is you know elsewhere in the MCU you've got people like Iron Man and Spider-Man they make a lot of pop culture references but they're reactive ones with Star-Lord it's like it's its own secret language you know like when he just casually says whoa back down Ninja Turtle to one of the henchmen trying to interrupt him at the start you know th- things like that Earth is a planet of outlaws like John Stamos <laughs> It's just that fluency he brings to it, I think, is the actual missing ingredient. I think, yeah, you've got the same problem with Quill as you do with Andy, I think, with Chris Pratt. Because I think Chris Pratt is one of those actors that always plays Chris Pratt. And it's difficult to sort of separate him entirely. I'm not saying he can't act. I'm just saying that I think he brings a significant chunk of himself to all of these roles. And I think that that's, that's generally fine. It becomes an issue when the individual rather than the character, you find things out about them and you bring those to the character when you're watching the next film because let's go with Chris Pratt's political views do not align with mine let's go with that <laughs> but yeah you know in, in, in terms of he always delivers stuff in the same sort of way doesn't he you know, if you watch the Jurassic World films he's still playing the same character it's still him it was Tom Baker that said that about Doctor Who it's not an acting part you just you bring yourself to it so fair enough but the real highlight for me who absolutely steals both films is Zoe Saldana as Gamora I think is just amazing oh yeah I think it's really the way that she manages to somehow she never drops Gamora's guard but she throws in things like hints of attraction to Star-Lord and and also the unspoken resentment of the fact that her and Nebula don't love each other as sisters but that's all it's just an adjunct of her main core character she doesn't switch between that and other frames of mind it's all part of that it's almost like additional parts of her 
her arbory, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. It's not like immediately on the surface, but it's there. It's all in the performance. And then, yeah, in terms of people that you possibly didn't need to have with this film, I don't think we needed Vin Diesel to be Groot. I'll be honest with you. I think it could have been literally anyone. I think you could have absolutely got... You know, it's lovely that Vin Diesel got something to do in the MCU after not being able to be Black Bolt. I think he might have been overpaid for I Am Groot. I think he might have been. I don't know. What do, what do you think? Do you think this wouldn't have worked without Vin Diesel? I'm going to say, I actually think he brings something to it because the I Am Groots, this is going to be the most ridiculous thing I've ever said. I think they're very, I think they have depth. Oh, no, they, I, I think that they it, are. Has, it has acting ability in them. I, I don't know. To me, the point of Vin Diesel is that he's just, you know, a walking brick of a man. And if all you're using from him is his voice, I don't know why you're getting Vin Diesel. It's like getting Arnold Schwarzenegger to do a voice. You know, it's like, okay, cool. Why? Why have you done this? I'm sure they've considered that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure they will. I'm sure Chris Pratt would be delighted to get his upcoming father-in-law into <laughs> into the Disney family. But no, I think the only sort of one of the main lot we've not talked about is Bradley Cooper, who is an excellent use of an actor with a recognisable voice. Yes, and he does get better film on film as Rocket. I mean, some of his deliveries in Endgame, which I appreciate we're not talking about at the moment, that bit where Tony Stark says, until this exact moment, I thought you would build a bear. And he just says, like a broken raccoon, maybe I am. You know, in a really downcast way. It's not just being a comedy raccoon, but like I say, that is. There is real character to everyone in this. It, and, you know, he starts the film. The first thing we see of Rocket is, you know, when he's watching everyone on Xandar and commenting on them, about them being in a big hurry to get from something stupid to nothing at all. Yeah. Sees, sees a child walking, so it's not cool to get help. And sees Stanley talking to some young women and says, where's your wife, old man? Which is a phrase I think quite often when looking at social media. I think specifically the it's not cool to get help is a, it's a little bit on the nose, I think. I mean, that's basically the entirety of Rocket's arc in the second film, isn't it? That it's not cool to get help. Yeah. Tying it back into the toxic masculinity stuff again. He's a mess that doesn't want to let anyone in and can't admit that he needs other people. But also, with the exception of Drax, who doesn't really care about the consequences of what he does. I mean, at one point, he actually calls Ronan's troops to where they are so that he yes, can take them on the loan. But the others, the whole thing, if you're playing it for laughs, the temptation would be to make them, you know, it's the spinal tap thing again. About if they were an awful band, if they were rubbish at playing their instruments and their songs were terrible, it wouldn't work as a film. They have to be a competent, believable band. It's like the way Alan Partridge, I don't like it when he's not a good broadcaster because he wouldn't be allowed on the air. No, you know, Alan no, can do that. a show, he can push up the correct faders and so on. And these guys, they are all brilliant at being outlaws. I mean, when they have that big fight on Xandar where they're all trying to get the orb and they get arrested for breach of the peace, if you watch carefully, they do not damage anything. They target no. each other all the time. And then they get put in the kiln, which is the most secure prison in the universe. And it gets quite nasty in there in some bits, particularly the bit where some inmates are going to basically take out their own justice on Gamora. And mm. it's not even said really what they plan to do to her, but obviously the others rescue her. But then they all break out by flying the watchtower out of prison. <laughs> and even that, that incredibly tense bit of them basically turning that into a jet-propelled vehicle has a huge number of jokes in it, particularly when Rocket starts listing what they need, including yes. there's an alarm with a Quandex battery in, so we need to get that last. And Groot just walks up and rips it off the wall and says, alternatively, we can get that first and improvise. I particularly enjoy the bit towards the end of all that where it's like, and I need that guy's eye. No, you don't. Yes, I do. 
<laughs> and he's just sniggering his way through it. And that does bring me on to the kind of thing I think people recognise this and the second movie most for, which is the soundtrack, which is incredibly well done. Because, I mean, when they are escaping, it has escaped the Pina Colada song by Rupert Holmes. Yes, yes. I mean, there is, I assume people listening to this will have seen it, but just in case not, it's based around the tape that Star Love was given by his mother with 70s soft rock classics on. But they're not the cliché ones. It reminds me of, there used to be a series when I first got a CD player called Raised on Rock, where there were very cheap CD compilations where there'd be things like Come and Get Your Love and Fooled Around and Fell in Love on them. You know, stuff that was cheap to license because nobody wanted it at that point. And if you've just got a CD player, you know, you wanted cheap CDs for it. It's like an alternate version of the 70s. Well, not the Grimly style 70s. Big platform boots and spangles. Or the punk <laughs> 70s, which you see if you're watching BBC4 every Friday. And angry men will tell you that that was all that happened in the 70s. <laughs> you know, the kind of the smooth soft rock side of it. And the songs are just so well chosen and go so well. My favourite use of that is in the Fooled Around the Fell in Love bit, which is where, I don't know, I think it's a big crosswise thing. I think although we've seen Star-Lord's kind of carefree lover side a few times in it so far, Barith has got her, there's the joke about if we had the black light in here, it looked like a Jackson Pollock painting, yeah. that sort of thing. I think with Gamora, he's actually trying to be sincere, at least initially, rather than just get into her pants. And she responds to that initially, and then he tells her the legend about Footloose, and then they're about to basically fool around and fall in love, and she announces that she's not some starry-eyed waif ready to come to his pelvic sorcery. But I think the choice of fooled around and fell in love for that is, it just suits it so perfectly. Why would you risk your life for this? Your mother gave it to me. My mom likes sharing with me all the pop songs that she loved growing up. I happen to have it on me. When I was that she when I left Earth what do you do with it do nothing you listen to it or you can dance I'm a warrior and an assassin I do not dance really well on my planet there's a legend about people like you it's called Footloose and in it a great hero Named Kevin Bacon. He teaches an entire city full of people with sticks up their butts that dancing, well, it's the greatest thing there is. Who put the sticks up their butts? What? No, that's just a. That is cruel. Just a phrase people use. Well, and I am not some starry-eyed wave here to succumb to your, your po- 
Atomic sorcery! I think pretty much everything is diegetic as well, which you don't get that a lot, do you? Certainly not in Marvel films. What you mostly get in Marvel films is big orchestral important noise, which I'm fine with, you know. That's what you want in an Avengers film. But yeah, it's, it's nice that this has a com- completely different tone. I'm just having a look. Apparently, Wichita Lineman and Mama Told Me Not To Come were both in there as well at one point. I didn't know Wichita Lineman. No, it's not. Apparently the scene was cut from the film. Oh, no, no hang on. Wait, I'm reading that wrong. Wichita Lineman and Mama Told Me Not To Come were originally considered for the film instead of Moon Age Daydream. Would that be because they wanted to have to get the rights to it with it being a David Bowie song? I mean, potentially. I don't know. But obviously then Bowie was nearly in volume two and that as much as I love Sylvester Stallone in that that is one of the really sad what ifs of the MCU yes but I don't know if Bowie would have been right for that specific role I think you you need a they have very different physiques let's go with that <laughs> that's it it's difficult to do justice to this film though because like you say it does go off in so many different directions but they don't feel like different directions it's part of a unified whole building up to the incredible you know defeating Ronan the Accuser with a dance off it does build up to that and then that is later ridiculed by Spider-Man in Infinity War no it's ridiculous that's that's why it's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous yeah honestly it's still strange to me that this came from James Gunn when you look at his history up to this point like I can see the, the bits that make sense as it being James Gunn but I can't see why Disney hired James Gunn at this point when when you you know Scooby-Doo a bunch of trauma stuff Slither I mean Slither's great fun but also it's, it's really not pleasant. Well, apparently Joss Whedon claims he recommended James Gunn, but Joss Whedon also claims that it was his idea to put Thanos at the end of yeah, Avengers Assemble. He claimed a bunch uh, of things that I think we can nonsense uh, because comfortably say we should ignore. Just do no, that. Even putting it in the most polite terms, there were films with Infinity Stones in already in the planning stage by the time that scene he came up with from nowhere was shot. So Indeed. least of his worries at the moment, but yeah, let's... <laughs> I just want to say as well about one person we haven't mentioned, who was my oh, yeah, Rooker yeah. as Yondu it was superb because I have loved Michael Rooker since I first saw I mean this is so me do people remember that Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer came out the same time as Silence of the Lambs and I had to think about I've read reviews and I thought Silence of the Lambs is glamorising violence I'm going to see the one that shows it as it is but he was brilliant in that he really really and since then I mean most characters played have been kind of variations on Henry including Yondu but he plays them so well and in this, the bit I love the most is the scene where, I mean, Christopher Furbank's in this, <laughs> an intergalactic kind of contraband dealer. But when he refuses to say who the orb's for, Michael Rocker just starts going, a boo la ba la absolutely straight face how do you do that how is that possible <laughs> I think Michael Rooker is one of those I don't know if it's if it's right to call him a character actor I think he is for me he's in the same sort of school as people like Michael Ironside and Lance Henriksen you put them in the film and they go what am I doing right and then they do that thing that you've asked them to do at about 200% whether it's low budget whether it's a multi-million dollar thing you are getting the biggest performance you possibly can from these people and it's brilliant <laughs> it's, no he's he's great and obviously he gets a lot more to do in the second one right so should we talk about the post credit scenes because we've got a couple again because it's Marvel so of course we have yeah there's the first one which is the first time you see it if you don't know Groot you probably think Groot has actually sacrificed himself to save well he has I'm sure most people who saw this wouldn't have known about Groot's regenerative properties so think you see Rocket holding a twig and it moves slightly yes yeah, it's, it's a potted sapling isn't it? But then you get the potted sapling 
dancing so I want you back by the Jackson 5 except when Drax looks at it <laughs> where it stands completely stock still but my understanding is that that isn't just original Groot that is son of Groot that is a, a cutting from Groot so it's not exactly the same another yeah. Groot yeah. yeah not like the one that fought Jimmy Woo <laughs> no. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. When Groot and Jimmy Woo finally sort of see each other in the MCU, Jimmy Woo might say, Oh, you again. So, you know, could happen. (laughs) Then there's the other post credit scene that we've already kind of alluded to a couple of times, isn't there? Yeah, where it's the collector in the ruins of his collection on Nowhere drinking with Cosmo the Space Dog and Howard the Duck. Voiced by Seth Green. And everyone went, Oh, they're going to make a Howard the Duck film. And James Gunn was sort of going, No, it's a joke. (laughs) I put him there because people. People would go, that's Howard the Duck, and that's it. I'm not making a Howard the Duck film. He has been in two other films. Yeah, I know, but we're not ready for a Howard the Duck film, Tim. We're not. We're we're just not. Right. Just wait to bring Herbie the Robot and Firestar oh, in. I mean, Firestar, I can easily see them doing. I really hope they don't do Herbie the Robot. I really no. Oh, I do. No, just have it as something in the background that falls over. We all know what you're really waiting for. It's Defenders of the Earth. <laughs> Even Marvel. But he's armed with his powers. He never will fall. Yeah, that's... Yet we see him fall over in the cartoon all the time. Right. So, Tim, let's close by asking you if you had Star-Lord's jet boots and the ability to hold infinity stone what would you do with them i would go to abbey road studios and break in and steal the master tape for carnival of light the unreleased beatles electronic track from 1967 i go on the day paul mccartney's recording there so go oh it's a flying fella and i get that unheard music out and release it for everyone which really is what star love would do but with like a soft rock thing rather than scary electronic tones of john lennon saying barcelona are I mean, you so, right? so to be clear that's what the jet boots are for are you saying that in order to hold the tapes for Carnival of Light you would need the power to hold an Infinity Stone. Do you see it being released? I think that tape is dangerous in some way George Harrison might have said, I thank God a clue when somebody asked him why it hadn't been released but I think it's just covering for the fact that they acted on Tim, have you considered it might not actually be very good? (laughs) That's immaterial I sat there in humans Yeah, I I wish that I hadn't had to Tim, that'll do and Excelsior in space. I'm off to listen to Carnival I'm watching No, you're not. (laughs) No. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.